Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquet-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Andrea Sacrivos, Albert Einstein Professor Emeritus of Science and Engineering at the Levitch Institute at the City College of New York, talks about his life and career with his former student, Eric Schakfe, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering of Stanford University. Born in Greece to an affluent family, Dr. Akrivis' life took a definitive turn during the German occupation of Greece in the Second World War. He moved to the United States to study chemical engineering with the plan of returning to his native country to build an industry. Instead, he became an integral part of American academics and was instrumental in developing the chemical engineering programs at UC Berkeley, Stanford University, and City College of New York. Always pushing his research beyond the formal training he received, he sought to attract the most talented and ambitious students and served as an example to many young Greeks who chose to follow in his footsteps. Hello. Um... My name is Eric Schockfe, and I'm the Lester Levi Carter Professor of Engineering at Stanford, and it is my pleasure uh, to be here to interview uh, a person who's a giant in the field of chemical engineering uh, and fluid mechanics. Um, he's been my friend and mentor for 30 years, and originally my PhD advisor, and he's Professor Andreas Akervos. Um, so welcome, Andy. Um, it's wonderful to be here and talk to you about your life and your impact on chemical engineering and fluid mechanics. So I look forward to answering your questions. Um, so I thought we'd start more or less in chronological order. Um, so let's talk about uh, your upbringing and how that uh, essentially prepared you or steered you towards engineering and science. I know you were born in Athens, and I know you went through your elementary and secondary school education in Greece. So why don't you talk a little bit about that experience and uh, how you came to be a scientist. Good. Well, I was born with a golden spoon in my mouth. I had very loving parents. I was brought up in a cultural environment. My parents were lovely people. They were part of the Athens Society, very well established. So I had everything I wanted as a kid. I went to grammar school in my suburb, in, which in Tsiikoi, suburb of Athens, and then I enrolled in Athens College, which is, in spite of its name, it's a high school, and it was established by Americans. Very high standards and very tough teaching. Teaching in the classics. Curiously enough, not so much in the sciences, mm. but we learn how to study and study on our own. I grew up, my father was a part manager and part owner of a textile factory, and my mother, through her brothers, was related to a very prominent uh, family of uh, shipping brokers throughout the Balkans. So it seemed like my life would have been an easy one. I was going to perhaps inherit my father's business mm -hmm. and live the good life. And then the war came and the German occupation and that of course changed everything. You can't imagine how dreadful the occupation was. Although we did not uh, suffer as much as an awful lot of other people in Europe, it was the kind of years that I would much rather forget. Now, as far as to what extent my life steered me towards science and engineering, that's a more complicated issue to, uh, question to answer because Although my father was trained as a, as a chemist and did, as I said, textile engineering, there was never any talk about science in my, in my family. Mm. The whole background of that kind of society was in commerce. 
And so I never thought too much about uh, making a living until the war came. Mm. And then the equation changed. So, so then how did chemical engineering or engineering itself ever come into the picture? Well, my passion when I was a teenager was history. And had I been, let's say, affluent, I think I would have become a dilettante historian, mm -hmm. and perhaps a professional historian. But I had to think about making a living. And in those days, the best students went into engineering. So I was a top student in high school, and so engineering had to be. Mm. Now, what kind of engineering? Yeah. Well, my father was a chemist. I wanted to be an engineer, so, you know, the two pointed me to chemical engineering, okay. even though I had absolutely no idea what chemical engineering was, was about. And curiously enough, many of my contemporaries in the States, whom I've met after many years, chose chemical engineering for the same purpose. Mm. Okay. They wanted to study engineering, and somebody in their family was a chemist. Was a chemist, I see. And that's how it all became. Uh, okay. So now you're you were essentially finishing high school in Greece, and uh, I know you were an undergraduate at Syracuse here. How did that transition happen? And can you contrast yeah. those two experiences? They must have been enormously different. Well, first of all, why Syracuse? Yeah. Well, it was in 1947. Europe was completely devastated by the war. Greece was in the middle, middle of a civil war. Mm. So I had to get out and try to get my education in just about the only place that offered an opportunity, and that was the United States. Mm. And thanks to the um, intervention of the principal of Athens College, who wrote to a whole bunch of universities in the state, I was offered a scholarship at Syracuse University. Mm. I didn't know a thing about Syracuse University. Okay. And so I went there. I and a classmate of mine together went to Syracuse. Uh, we took a, a converted troop ship with lots of immigrants, <laughs> ended up in New York. Yeah. We had no relatives in New York or in the States. Yeah and then went to Syracuse mm -hmm. to study. Well, I'm extremely grateful to Syracuse for taking me on. Yeah. I mean, without that scholarship, I would have never come here. Okay. At the same time, I must say that the education I received at Syracuse left an awful lot to be desired, Well, especially in engineering. I mean, it prepared you well enough, though, to go to a very, very good Ph.D. program. And, it, and at some point, you must have well, impressed people enough with your Syracuse education to be taken on by the University of Minnesota. Well, first of all, what I had to do, aside from chemistry, I had some very good chemistry teachers. Yeah. But aside from that, my education, whatever I learned at Syracuse, I had to learn on my own. Yeah by reading the books, okay. because unfortunately the poor teachers, they were overworked. I mean, I'll give you one example. We had this, this fellow, uh, he, got, he had his PhD in chemistry. He was an expert in catalysis. And yet here he was teaching courses in fluid, fluid flow, heat transfer, process design, process control, uh, uh, you yeah. mentioned it. Yeah. And the poor fellow did, just didn't know anything. <laughs> I can tell you stories about yeah. that. And this was typical. Hmm. So I was a top student, and I got all A's, except for I got a B in lathe. I couldn't <laughs> figure out how to work a lathe. <laughs> and in drawing, I was lousy at drawing. Okay. But aside from that, I had a straight A. Okay. And then when I finished, my plan was always to go back to Greece. Oh, okay. 
because there was a lot of pressure from my family to go back. Of course, yeah. I was the only son and so right. on. But I felt I had not learned enough. Mm -hmm. That my education was not quite as thorough as I was expecting to allow me to function as an engineer. So I thought I should, I should go to graduate school and just get a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And so I applied. I applied to MIT because everybody wanted to MIT, and as far as Greece was concerned, there was only one school that was MIT. Right. And I applied at Princeton, I applied at Columbia, and in fact, I went and visited these schools at my expense. Mm -hmm. But they all told me, well, we'll accept you, but uh, there's no financial aid, right. which I couldn't afford. So then I decided, well, let me look at other parts of the country. Eventually, I, I focused or my attention on two schools, University of Illinois and University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Now, and I was trying to decide between the two. Mm -hmm. And... Now you go to the, you ultimately decide to go to the University of the, Minnesota. The question is, why did I decide to go to the University of Minnesota? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, it, because, well, at the time, I know that it was a very, very highly ranked school, and there were a couple of extremely good people there, including Neil Amundsen, who you ultimately work with. But he's in the area of applied mathematics. He's, he's an icon in the area of applied mathematics. You didn't really have that background. I mean, you had a good education, uh, as you say, of your own making. So how did, how did that happen? First of all, your perception of what Minnesota was like in 1950 is totally off the wall, I'm <laughs> sorry to say. That's fine. Amundsen, who was 35 at that time, yes. was totally unknown. Uh -huh. And the University of Minnesota as a university was a respected university, but not one of the great universities. And the chemical engineering department was, let's say, unranked. Hmm. Man, completely different than it is yeah. today. Com That's absolutely. Right. So it was, it was a total unknown. Wow. So I was trying to decide between Illinois and Minnesota. And remember, my main objective was to get a master's degree and go back to Greece. So I looked at the catalog what kind of courses I would take. And they looked about the same, you know, advanced distillation, advanced mass transfer, advanced uh, fluid flow, and that kind of thing. But there was a two-quarter sequence of courses in Minnesota that really appealed to me. And they were called plant design. <laughs> it was a beautiful description of how you go about, you know, what are the principles of designing a plant, how to take economic factors into consideration, and so on and so forth. I said, you know, that's what I need. Well, that's, that's what you need for... For Greece. For Greece. You see? So I chose Minnesota. <laughs> so I went there in the fall of 1950, and the first big surprise for me was a new building, which I didn't expect. Like all chemical engineering departments in those days, chemical engineering in Minnesota had started in the basement of, of the old chemistry building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in 1950, they had just opened up a brand new building of its own. The next big surprise was meeting Amundsen. Mm -hmm who impressed me immensely at first glance. Really? As a person, I mean, you could see that this was somebody that was going to go ahead. Uh. He, he had some, that magic in him. Mm -hmm. And he was the advisor of all the incoming graduate students. Oh, okay. Was there a, was there a partition between master's students and PhD students, no, or were they no. were just graduate students? They were all graduate students. Yeah, okay. And, and your idea of getting a master's that you were lumped in with other people that wanted to get PhDs, etc. Yes, but most of, most of us, well, I would say a good part of us were master's students. Okay. 
And we were supported by teaching assistantships. Right, right. There was no research. There was no research money mm-hmm. for graduate work. So, so the third surprise is when I talked to Amundsen about my program, he says, well, you know, what most people do is they decide on a minor. And if you want, I said, I wanted chemistry, physical chemistry. Well, you take these courses, physical chemistry, and then you can take these courses in chemical engineering. And I said, how about, you know, this plant design? He says, what's that? Well, you know, it's in the catalog. It says this course. See, this silly course? My God, yeah. Uh, we haven't offered that, that course for ages. <laughs> Good thing you told me about it. I'll make sure we that, that it gets cross out of the it catalog. Off. There it, you go. Because it's <laughs> so there I was, choosing Minnesota for the wrong reasons, yeah. making the best decision in my life, but for the r- wrong reasons. This is remarkable. So yeah. then you go there yeah. with the idea of getting your master's yeah. and then going back to Greece. Yeah. You went there with the idea of taking these plant design courses yeah. because then you would need that to be essentially yeah. a practicing chemical engineer That's back right. in Greece. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and really, none of that happened. Yeah. What you ultimately did was actually get your Ph.D. and ultimately go into a teaching career in the United okay. States. So how, how, how does that happen then in your well, first of all, I had a wonderful experience as, as a graduate student. Yeah. Superb courses. Both with Amundsen, who was a fantastic teacher, and also in physical chemistry. We had some, some excellent teachers there. Mm-hmm. And I learned a tremendous amount. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And um, so then I said, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun being a graduate student. So I stopped at the, at the master's degree. And of course, they were very happy to see me continue. Mm-hmm. And I was given a thesis in the hot topic of the day, yeah. distillation. Yes. But it was a very tough mathematical problem. And, uh, you know, I still sometimes read my thesis, and I should give it to you because you're going to enjoy reading it. It is, it's really a beautiful thesis. And I had to invent a new transform in order to solve the equations that I described distillation. Mm-hmm. It was a difference integral equation oh, okay. that nobody had ever looked at before. And I had to invent this transform. It was, it was, it was great. Now, so I got my PhD there. I'm finishing in three and a half years. And I still didn't feel quite prepared to go back to Greece. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking around for something to do. And in those days, this is 1954, foreign students just could not get a job in industry at all. In the United States. In the United States. Right. So, Okay, teaching. And Amundsen would go around to everybody else and tell them they had this, he had this great student. And would they hire him? And he talked to Charlie Wilkie, mm-hmm. who was in the head of a chemical engineering program. It was not a department yet in, uh, in Berkeley. And so I was offered a temporary position as an instructor for three quarters to teach applied math. Okay. So, so, so Neil essentially shopped you around as a professor hire, as a teaching hire. Yes. And you were amenable to that. You yeah. wanted to do that because you weren't ready to go back to Greece at That's that right. point. Yeah. And the place you landed then was a temporary teaching position That's at right. Berkeley. Not only that, but I still have the letter that offering me that position from Charlie Wilkie saying that under no circumstances were they going to extend that appointment. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always very fond of showing this to Charlie. Showing that to him, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so were you going to do research? I mean, a temporary teaching appointment, No, not the no, no. generally the idea is that they teach and probably teach a lot. Um, no, I was, and this is the nice thing about that appointment. Yeah. On one hand, it was a very cheap appointment. They didn't pay me. It was hardly anything. Mm-hmm. The salaries for, I should say, the salaries for uh, 
professors in those days were really pitiful. Mm -hmm. The big money was made in industry, right. but that was close to me. I couldn't go to industry. Yeah. I didn't have a permanent visa. Mm -hmm. I was st still on a student visa. And so that was the only job I had. No other offers. Okay. So they gave me this job and I taught, I think it must have been two courses a term. Mm -hmm which I did, okay, and then I wrote the papers based on my thesis, and I did a little bit of research on my own, but I had no graduate students, and uh, it was a wonderful appointment. Oh, okay. Well, it was no... a wonderful appointment because I presume it was extended beyond the Oh, yes. The original... After about a quarter, they decided they better keep me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you see, one problem with Berkeley in those days was, first of all, there were two chemical engineering programs at Berkeley. One in the College of Chemistry, ah. where it is now, yeah. and one in the College of Engineering, which was called chem uh, Chemical Engineering Practice. I see. And the university had to decide which one to keep and which one to let go. Right. So I joined the department which might have might been have, ab yeah. abolished yeah. within you know, a couple of months. I see. But eventually the decision was made to keep the chemical engineering because it was obviously much better than the other one I see. in uh, the College of Chemistry, and then to, to expand it further. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing was that I had wonderful colleagues. I mean, you cannot imagine, as I look back, how extremely supportive the five original members of that department were towards the younger people. Yeah. It was Charlie Wilkie, who was the chair yeah. and the intellectual leader, and Ted Vermeulen, and Charlie Tobias, Don Hanson, and Leroy Bromley. And they were always extremely solicitous and trying to help us okay. in any way you could. When I say us, it was Gene Peterson, who had preceded me by one semester, and then John Prouschitz, who came after a year and a half. Mm. So it was a very good environment where everybody helped everybody else. Uh, we were all trying to take, uh, if you like, unrated department and build it up right. to one of the very first ones uh, on an international scale. And everybody worked together. It was yeah. a wonderful experience. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. To have that kind of senior support for a yeah. junior person is invaluable in some sense. Now, we've forgotten about a very important thing, and, I, and I'll get in trouble if we uh, continue to do this. At some point here, I think in graduate school, you actually met your future wife, Jenny. Yeah. And is she now with you in Berkeley in this, through this, from this move? No, I came... I came in 54, yes. and she was still a graduate student in chemistry, uh -huh. and got her, she, she got her PhD in 56, Okay, and then we got married in Cuba, oh, I where see. she's from, Okay, and then she came okay. to, to Berkeley. Ah, I see. Okay, fine. So you're, you're there. You're now on an appointment that is in some sense extended. You're doing some research. Do you start to have graduate students? Yes, and the thing is... I had to have make a decision as to what I would do for research. Right. And the strange thing is that I never really formally studied mathematics. Hmm. The only formal math course I took was a freshman math, you know, differential and integral calculus. Yeah. And all the other math I learned, I learned on my own. And by taking Amundsen's courses. But by taking Amundsen's courses. But also, in addition, by, uh, uh, learning on my own. And for the first uh, few years of my career, what I was doing is what Amundsen was doing, in a sense. I had mathematical skills with analysis, and I could use them to solve various applied problems of interest to chemical engineers. Right. I wrote, for example, one article all by myself on the applications of, of matrix mathematics to chemical engineering problems. Mm -hmm. And it was a nice paper, 
very original because nobody had thought of doing that before. Right. But I came to realize that this, you know, this does, won't lead anywhere. I mean, just picking one problem here and solving and doing this exercise and so on. Mm -hmm. I needed a field. Yeah. So I looked around for a field, and, and I had a friend, Tom Barron, who was a, a researcher in, uh, in an upcoming administrator at Shell Development Company in Emeryville. And he advised me to go into fluid mechanics. He says, you're good at math. Fluid mechanics is an active field, interesting field. None of your colleagues know anything about fluid mechanics. I didn't know anything either. <laughs> but so it's, it's a good opportunity. I mean, you didn't so, even take a graduate course in fluid mechanics. I didn't even true? know an undergraduate course in fluid. <laughs> the only fluid mechanics I ever had was fluid flow, either Badger and McCabe. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the, the, the book means anything to no, you. No, I, I haven't actually seen the book. Okay, no. I will give it to you so you can see what it is <laughs> in there. <laughs> okay. So, so I decided, okay, what I'm going to do is, but first I had, I had to learn fluid mechanics. So how do you learn fluid mechanics? Well, by teaching it. So I got three other graduate students to volunteer to take a special course that I took on as an overload on special topics I in see. fluid mechanics. I see. So I got a book and started reading it. And team teaching, so I see. the blind leading the, the blind. <laughs> and how many people yeah. were there? Just, just, just me and the, the, and the three graduate students. The three graduate students. I see. And I took it as an overload. <laughs> so, right. Okay. So, so I, we took Schlichting's book. Mm -hmm. and we started learning fluid mechanics from Schlichting books. And then I had a friend, Larry Talbot, in, in aeronautical engineering at Berkeley, who had a fluid mechanics background, and every time I had some questions, I didn't understand some things in Schlichting, I would go to him and he would explain things to me. You're right. So that's how, I, so it's, it's ironic. Here I started my career teaching applied math, having had no formal training in mathematics. And ultimately, and teaching fluid mechanics. Teaching flu no formal training with, in fluid mechanics. No, no training whatsoever in yeah. fluid mechanics. Yeah. Uh, these things could never happen today. Yeah. Now, the other aspect of your career, which is um, unique, I think, is not just that you moved into a field of fluid mechanics, which you had no formal training in, but also I think now it's fair to say that you're probably most famous for your mentoring of students. So now you're at Berkeley. Where did you get essentially your abilities or how did you develop your abilities to teach and mentor students? Because that's certainly one of your strongest aspects. I mean, did you make this all up yourself or did you have very good, did you look at Neil Amundsen and learn how to mentor from that I point think of view? I, yeah, uh, Neil Amundsen was, of course, an excellent mentor. Mm -hmm. And he had the same ability. If you look at his career, mm -hmm. his career is very similar to that. I see. He had this ability to draw in a certain type of student who is ambitious and who is not afraid to take on challenges. Yeah. It seems like a real secret that you have. I mean, you, you, historically, you've, you've done that in a very, you, there's a, an incredibly strong string of students that you've had. And they've been very attracted to your mentoring. And I think that's, that's something that you develop and you're unique at. So it seems interesting. Well, the other person who I think there's a close parallel to that was George, George Batchelor. Mm -hmm. You see, I spent my first sabbatical in Cambridge right. in 1960. And the reason I went to Cambridge is, again, Amundsen had been there in 1954. Ah, and he told me that it was a great place. Mm -hmm. And he loved it. Uh, he met some outstanding people. So I decided to go there. Yeah. And that first sabbatical, I was housed in the chemical engineering department. Mm -hmm. But I met George Batchelor because at that time he was heading what, what was called the a fluids unit, it wasn't even a department, in the old Cavendish Laboratory on Free School Lane. And that department was housed in either two or three rooms, and the total acreage of the three rooms was no bigger than this room here. 
Soviets. Yeah. Everybody was <laughs> on top of everybody else. And two things impressed me immensely. First of all, meeting Bachelor. Bachelor was only eight years older than I. Yeah. But he had already established an international reputation. And he was like Amundsen in the sense that he had a magnetism which attracted the, the top students who wanted to get ahead. Yeah. And the other thing that impressed me is they had a small library. And the library contained the thesis of all the people who had gotten their PhDs in this unit. Mm. And there were about a dozen theses. Mm -hmm. I looked at the names, and I knew everyone, mm. any one of them. Starting with Bachelor yeah. and Townsend and Philip Safman and, uh, and Fritz Ersel and Anthony Pearson and uh, yeah. Brooke Benjamin. And, I mean, All any, enormous any, names in An incredible name. Yeah. Ian Proudman. I mean, yeah. and I said, you know, this, this, is, this is really what, yeah. what and, education is all about. And this started a relationship that yeah. you continued for years and years. I yeah. mean, going to Cambridge, sending students to Cambridge, etc. Not only that, but it, it made a great deal to me professionally that I was, as a visitor, I was accepted to the club. You see, this mm -hmm. was, in fluid mechanics, I was an outsider. Yeah. And one of the problems for an outsider is being accepted by the leaders of the field, mm -hmm. even though you don't have credentials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So this is something that I had a great deal of trouble accomplishing in the States. I Everybody see. looked at me and said, well, what's this chemical engineer doing in fluid mechanics? What mm -hmm. does he know? Yeah. Uh, obviously, I didn't know much. Yeah. But, but soon... It was completely different, right? It was Soon, different. Well, it took a while. Yeah, it took a while. But you see, with Bachelor, he accepted me right away, mm -hmm. and I became, and I still remember my how elated I was to be able to publish my first paper in JFM in 1962. 1962. Oh, I was, I made it. <laughs> and 1962 was a very good year because, in addition to the JFM paper. I published this paper with Tom Taylor, my graduate student from Berkeley, on heat and mass transfer that you yeah. uh, passed a sphere that you know about it, yes. which really established me as my credentials. Now, um, so sometime in this period of time, so now you you're have this relationship with Cambridge, you're teaching at Berkeley. Um, so the story goes, the people at Stanford, um, in particular Dave Mason, comes to you and says, we're, we're going to try an experiment at Stanford. We're going to try to grow a chemical engineering department again out of a chemistry department. Mm -hmm. And in this conversation, somehow he convinces you and somebody else, Michelle Boudard, ultimately, to come to Stanford and start a department. Yeah. How does that happen? Because you're obviously very happy at Berkeley. Yeah. Um, you, they, they, um, they had set you up, and you, and you had begun to have an international reputation, at least, in the area of fluid mechanics, which is quite a difficult thing to do without formal yeah. training. So why don't you talk about that transition? Yeah, it was, a, it was a very difficult decision. What led me to that? Well, there are lots of factors, one of them being that the department at Berkeley, as I said, was started by five people, yeah. and they were the leaders. Mm -hmm. And I respected their support, but eventually there comes a time when you say, well, I want to do something that is going to be different. And it's hard to do it uh, in the present environment because the people who control the department wanted to go to remain in a certain direction right. that I wanted to go away. And so it's different. What do you do? Mm -hmm. you, you can't throw them out. You respect them and, you know, they've been good to you. Right. So there was this ambition that I, w I wanted to create a department which was in the image of what Minnesota has, had become during that time or was beginning to become during that time, mm -hmm. 
and the fluid mechanics program at Cambridge was. Mm-hmm. A small but very high class science uh, uh, with a great deal of science in chemical engineering and fluid mechanics. Right. So this so, is what you imagined so Stanford was going to be like. Be. That's okay. right. And Stanford was starting from ground zero. Right. In addition, there were some other constraints. As you know, my Jenny, my wife, had a PhD in chemistry. But in those days, getting a full-time position for chemistry for females yeah, was. was essentially out of this world. I mean, there was no out of, out of any consideration. Mm-hmm. So she had temporary appointments. First, she had a, a postdoc uh, at, at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And she oh, used to know. commute from Berkeley. Who did she work with at Stanford? In the applied physics department, in the Hansen lab, mm-hmm. with somebody by the name of Scott Blois, who himself had a temporary appointment, so it was oh, okay. nobody that right. you had ever heard of. So eventually that was transferred to, it became a, a postdoctoral position in the so-called radiation laboratory, where she worked with Pitzer, and that was a very fine, mm-hmm. in chemistry. Right. But this was a temporary position, and she always felt that people who were hiring her and kept her on because of me. Oh, I see. And that was uncomfortable. Yeah. So a possibility arose at San Jose State for a bona fide teaching position right. with a possibility of doing some research, although they only have master's students there. Mm-hmm. And she applied there, and she received it. Okay. So that meant we had to move out of Berkeley as far as living there. Yeah. The question is, where do we live? On the East Bay or the, yeah. on the other side? So we visited Stanford and we saw the place where we could have a home. And so it, it was an inducement. Yeah. But I think the main consideration was that this, this opportunity to develop something unique from scratch. Mm-hmm. Was, was was what really was, induced you to go. Was exciting and new that and That was exciting. Now, why don't you talk so, about that? Because Stanford Chemical Engineering then changed. You, you were there for 25 years or more. Yeah. And uh, talk about how whether that happened, that vision of it growing up happened, and then yeah. how it transformed after that. Well, what happened is that, uh, okay, I came in. And when I came in, the department consisted of had four people, and I was the fifth person. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, oh, then a year later, we hired Doug Wild. And after that, we hired uh, Michelle Boudar, mm-hmm. and then Bob Maddox. And two of the original people uh, left. One went to industry, and the other one did not get tenure, and so he left. And it was, again, like the original Berkeley department. Mm. It was a small department, extremely congenial. Mm -hmm. Everybody was working together. Mm -hmm. We were helping one another. We were interested in each other's uh, research. Mm -hmm. We had an excellent seminar program. Everybody attended. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a great scholarly learning environment. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And we started attracting some really top graduate students. Mm-hmm. And when the first NRC report came out with the rankings of the PhD programs, our department, which was totally unranked where I, when I came, was, I think, ranked either fourth or fifth. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Right. So. So, okay, so, so essentially what you imagined happening at Stanford did happen. Did I happen, mean, you, that's yes. Right. And then how did it change? Because you were, you, you were there, and ultimately you actually left 25 years later yeah. or so to go to City College. Uh, now, those aren't necessarily related, but, but talk yeah. about the change in Stanford. Well, what had happened is, you see, just like Berkeley, when I was in Berkeley in 1954, and I'm talking about the campus as a whole, 
Berkeley was an ideal place. Uh, the lines of communication with the administration were very short. Mm-hmm. All you had to do is convince one administrator that what you proposed to do was was appropriate, and that was it. Mm-hmm. By that time, I left Berkeley in, in 62. Yeah. It had already grown. Mm. It had become very bureaucratic. I see. The lines of communication, you had to go through committees. Yeah. With the, yeah. And you can imagine what that yeah. led. The same thing happened at Stanford. I see. It Stanford, grew enormously in this period. It grew Stanford in enormous. 1962, you have, people don't realize that in 1962, Stanford was a dirt poor place mm-hmm. yeah. financially. Yeah. And we really had to scrounge to, to balance our, our books in the mm-hmm. department. Yeah. And even a $1,000, donation of $1,000 meant something yeah, it was to big, us. Yeah. Yeah. Now, eventually, in the 80s, it had grown. Okay. Things just were not the same. Mm-hmm. By that time, I was getting to be 60 years old. I felt, you know, it's not fun anymore here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I was sort of marginalized. I was People expected me to retire in a few years. I see. So... Time to look for a different challenge. I see. Well, before so, we go to the different challenge, though, let's talk about talk a little bit about your students. This must have been an enormous joy for you, because yes, I, of course. I, I mean, I, I know them because I'm one of them. We're like a family, an academic family. We know each other. We know each other's work throughout the years, and, and that was all. And, and you also know some of my Berkeley students. Yes, and I know some of your Berkeley students yeah. too. So talk yeah. about your students a little bit. I mean, how do you, you know? Well, I'm extremely fond of all of my students. Yeah. And some of them have reciprocated my fondness, and yeah. others have not. <laughs> so, but that's to be expected. Yeah. But um, I mean, we we have events on a regular basis for you, and and everybody shows up. It seems to me just with an enormous enthusiasm. For yeah. You, so. so it's great. It's a know? special thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Special. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been extremely lucky in attracting these kinds of yeah. students. Of course, not everybody was attracted to me. There were lots of students that would uh, would run away as soon as I showed up. But uh, that's that's the way it is. Now, when you started, especially when you started teaching at Berkeley and then in the early years at Stanford, you could say that you introduced a lot of these applied mathematical techniques to chemical engineering because people weren't using them. Yeah. specifically to solve chemical engineering problems or fluid mechanics problems particularly. For example, you talked about your paper with Tom Taylor about using the method of matched asymptotic expansions to solve flow problems past mm-hmm. spheres, and people weren't doing that. And that was one of your big research contributions. Um, how has that aspect of chemical engineering changed over your career? So applied mathematics and its applications. Yeah, this is... What has changed now is computers. Mm-hmm. In those days, if you go back to the 60s, if you wanted to calculate anything of any kind of complexity, you were stuck. Mm-hmm. The kind of computers that were available, I mean, you have no idea how primitive things were in mm-hmm. those days. So if you wanted to do any kind, let's say you take any kind of halfway respectable fluid mechanical problem and you wanted to solve it, like deformation of a drop and so on in a shear flow, mm-hmm. you had to do analysis. Mm-hmm. And to do analysis, you had to solve nonlinear equations, which you can't solve mm-hmm. unless you use asymptotics, mm-hmm. where you consider special cases. Right. And you'd say that something goes to infinity, something goes to zero, you combine and so on. So you get a pretty good idea. So you, you, you must develop a skill with a lot of physical intuition to try and figure out the kind of approximations you have to make in the mathematical description of the, of the problem to come up with a solution which is useful. Mm-hmm. Because you cannot do this 
through calculations. Right. Nowadays, with the way computers are evolving, as you know, it's easy to do calculations. And so there's, a, of course, good side to it, and there's a bad side to it. You do the calculation so you can get an answer to, to a question that uh, you are interested in very shortly. Right. Okay. And you get an answer to infinite, quote-unquote, precision, whether the answer is correct or not, that's another story. But you can get an answer. Yes. So that's the good part. The bad part is that you get all these answers, but they're for a very, very specific set of conditions. Because you have to put numbers in the coefficients of the equation for the particular problem you're trying to solve. And your rush to calculate these special cases you don't devote as much attention to trying to unify the, 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 the solution to these special cases in order to get an, a complete picture of what's going on. Mm -hmm. In other words, the ability to analyze, to do asymptotic expansions has not evolved to the same degree as the ability to compute things. Yeah. In fact, it's the other way around. Nowadays, there are very few people that do any kind of asymptotics. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's a shame. Yeah, and with that, I, I know you feel this, or at least have expressed it to me, that perhaps people's physical intuition isn't nearly as developed. Because mm -hmm. in the process of doing that analysis, you develop a physical feel for the situation. You had to. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you did not have this physical intuition, you could not just using mathematical techniques yeah. come up. That is, you, you had to look at the problem and say, well, how does, the, how does the physics evolve when I do this, that, and the rest? Right. And that would lead you to make the kind of mathematical approximations. Yeah. And a great uh, master of this was G.I. Taylor, of course. Yeah. And it was being said by G.I. Taylor that he knew the answer he was going to get. And you use the mathematics just to make it look respectable. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh. And, and many of his papers read like that, actually, yeah. that he, he goes, he yeah. basically puts in a few mathematical steps to go to the answer that he knew was the answer to yeah. begin with. Yeah. So, now, but on the other hand, you were one of the first people to actually use the computer in fluid mechanics to solve fluid mechanical problems. So you right. did find value in using the computer of all course. through your career. But I did both. Yeah. You That's, see? I solved the problems that I could do using asymptotics, mm -hmm. and these are these I could not do. I used numerical techniques and always try to sort of blend in the results with the ones that I got using asymptotic right. analysis. Right, right. and that's and this um, is what's missing. And and if if you look at your students, I think they still do all do that, even though. Yes. Obviously, most of your students are involved in large computations of things. They're still using asymptotics to develop physical intuition, yeah. which is an art that's, well, it's, it's somewhat lost in chemical engineering, but it's still yeah. being taught by your students. So hopefully it'll, it, it might have a renaissance, right, with microfluidics and microhydrodynamics. Yeah, um, anyway, let's talk about your next challenge. So now you're, you're at, you were at Stanford yeah. 25 years, you're in your 60s, yeah. and you decide you need to go to another challenge, and that yeah. other challenge was going to CCNY, City yeah. College of New York, as the Einstein professor and director of the Levitch Institute. Talk a little so bit about a, that. It's a great place. Yeah. Again, you go to a place, the Levitch Institute was established by Benjamin Levitch, but it, didn't, it had not really amounted to anything. So I went there and sort of developed it. Mm -hmm. And now, especially as a result of my success or more than it has developed into a, a great place for doing fluid mechanics research. It's, it, it has established an international reputation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, mm -hmm. And you had a, a wonderful time there? You were there for, what, a, a decade? Officially, I, I went there in January 1st, 1988. Mm-hmm. And I retired officially 12, year, 12 and a half years later, okay. in 2000. 
But I stayed on for several years more to con students, to con postdocs. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I spent 20 years there. Mm -hmm. I see. It was great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get excellent students. The undergraduates, some of these undergraduates are just fantastic at mm -hmm. City College. I see. Some of them don't belong in a university, but this is true <laughs> in most other places. <laughs> but and okay. it's and you and some of your colleagues, some of my colleagues, were really wonderful people. Okay. And amazingly so. Yeah. So you're so, now officially retired. So I'm officially retired. And you're you're back here at Stanford. I'm back at Stanford and in the mechanical engineering department, yeah. actually. And yeah. it's a, it's a good group. It's headed by Parviz Moyen, mm -hmm. as you know, the Center for Turbulence Research. It's, again, a small, internationally famous group. Mm -hmm. Everybody's very nice to me, for everybody else. It's, it's great. So one of the things I'm struck by, and, I, and I, obviously I see you a lot, and uh, we talk a lot, and one of the things you told me, in fact, you told me this a couple of weeks ago, is that, you know, in your present role, people come to you all the time and ask you for advice as to, you know, advice about their career, how, what steps to make, how to make decisions, etc. And, and you said to me, and this is really interesting, that maybe you're not the best person to ask that question to now. That's right. Why don't you say, tell us why you think that? Well, I belong in a different generation. I belong to the last century. Hmm. So my formula for as an academic was, let's, I look around, I choose problems because I find them fascinating from a fundamental point of view. And I work on them. And I was very lucky. I could always get support to, do on the, to work on the things that I wanted to work on. Mm -hmm. And there was never any pressure on me to have lots of students. The maximum number of students I ever had was six. That's remarkable considering uh, today's climate. Yeah. I mean, because you know now six is considered a very small group, actually. I know. Yeah. And now people, you know, get, they have to, the, the pressure is in a research university is immense to get big groups with, of course, lots of money. Mm -hmm. And so people are forced to work on things that I personally find not at all satisfying from an intellectual point of view, just because there's money. Yeah. And, 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 and so if I were to advise somebody to say, okay, focus on what I did. Make sure you only take the very best graduate students. Mm -hmm. And if you can't find anybody one year, just don't take anybody. Mm -hmm. And work only on the problems you're really passionately interested in. Yeah. You're going to end up, he's going to end up with a group of one or two or three or four people. And in today's environment, this will not get him anywhere. Mm. I don't think the university is ready to appreciate somebody who does precisely what I just finished saying. So what advice do you give young people? The kind of advice to do is, listen, you're, only, you're a grown-up person. What you have to do is you decide what you want out of life. Take advantage of your opportunities and do the best you can, whatever will, yeah. will excite you. Yeah. Well, let me add something you did not ask me, although it may have been one of your original questions, about my legacy. Okay, we, t we talked about my legacy in uh, mentoring students. Yeah. That, of course, is a good part of my legacy. Mm -hmm. But there are other aspects to my legacy, of which I'm very proud of. One is, as you know, I, I was the editor of the Physics of Fluids mm -hmm. for, what is, 16 or 17 years. And I'm really very proud of that. Mm. Physics of Fluids was established the same year that Jeff M. was established, in 1956. And it started out as a fluid mechanics journal. 
Eventually, they took on the plasma physics community who wanted a, a, a journal for their, their papers. And what happened is the fluid mechanics component shrunk down to essentially 5% of the journal. Yeah. So when I became co-editor, it was my task to build that 5% to make it big, big enough so that we could split off from the f plasma physics community right. and have our own journal. Yes. I remember it you is, worked very hard at that because I was a graduate yeah, student when you it, were... It was a very, <clears throat> a very exciting and fulfilling task to do that. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was extremely proud of myself for having accomplished this because when I finished being the editor in 97, the journal was well on its way to become essentially equal for practical purposes in terms of influence to the journal of fluid mechanics. Yes. And it's and, very, very successful today. Yeah. It continues so, to be very successful. So I'm extremely happy about yeah. this. The other part of my legacy is that I've been involved with three departments, Berkeley, Stanford, and uh, City College, where by being present, I really had an influence. Mm -hmm. Now at Berkeley, of course, the credit goes to Charlie Wilkie for, for good reason. Mm -hmm. And to Stanford, I don't know how much credit I'm given these days. No, you know, <laughs> I think that's, you're given enormous credit as one of the right. founding fathers, and I'm the chair, so every time I <laughs> present the department, I present yeah. Your legacy within the department is one of the founding fathers. So I think that's... And City College, of course, I have made... I've had a big impact there, so I'm very mm -hmm. proud of that. And finally, there's a, a, another aspect of it, and this is the following. If you look around, there is now a group of chemical engineering professors, over a hundred, who are of Greek origin. And they're extremely successful. Mm -hmm, very much so. And what I discovered many years ago, that in some sense, I'm partly responsible for this. Mm. Because, for one thing, chemical engineering way back when in, in Greece attracted the best students because it was the toughest curriculum. I see. And those that, the students that were ambitious... wanted to study the most difficult subject because they were going to learn the most. That was their attitude. I see. So there were these great students, and they were looking mm. for something to do beyond what they graduated. Right. So they learned about this kid that he was the only one yeah. that had gone into teaching in the United States. And you were and a role model then for that. I was a role model. Right. And a number of people have come to me and said, you know, you had a big influence on me because they, I figured out, you know, if he, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> right. So, and we meet, once a year we have a dinner of the Greek, uh, Greek chemical engineers yes. doing the ASCHE meeting. Mm -hmm. And I meet these guys and it's, it's a great joy to see them, how well the, the community of these Greek chemical engineers has done. Mm. In yeah. fact, I used to say as a joke that no chemical engineering worth department was, was worth considering until don't. at least they had at least one Greek in the <laughs> fac faculty. But it was a joke, okay. of course. Well, this is, um, <clears throat> uh, this, is, uh, this has actually been wonderful. I'm, I'm so happy that I've had this chance. And uh, it's been great to talk about old times, and and I learned so much from this as well. I uh, I I knew most of the last kind of half, but the first half I didn't know very much about your upbringing. So it was really it was really wonderful to share this. Good. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio for 80 years. Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>